0: Welcome to the 165th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with best-selling author Dean Kuntz. Koontz's new novel, The City, was published this week. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read. And authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And look for the link in the show notes as well. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm extremely excited today to interview Dean Kuntz. If you've been in a bookstore in the last 30 years, Kuntz almost needs no introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. 14 of Kuntz's novels have risen to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, including One Door Away from Heaven, From the Corner of His Eye, The Husband, Relentless, and many other novels. The City, Kuntz's latest novel, has just been published this week. Dean Kuntz, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me there.
0: Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel yet, The City, how would you describe The City?
1: Well, it's, it's something I've never tried before in the narrative approach. It's told by a 57-year-old piano man who is looking back on something that happened to him. When he was eight, nine, and ten, so you've got this adult voice, but telling a story uh, in which a child figures at center. Um, and his name is Jonah Ellington, Basie Hines, Eldridge Wilson, Hampton Armstrong, Kirk. Uh, and most of those names would resonate with people who didn't know jazz or he didn't know big band music. But Jonah comes from a family of people uh, who are musicians and rather good ones. His mother is a struggling singer. His grandfather was a well-known piano man. And uh, John is telling you about some wondrous, amazing, mystical, sometimes frightening things that happened to him when he was eight, nine, and ten and how they shaped his entire life. And it's, it's really a story about uh, families and a mother-son relationship and the fact that the world, from my point of view and from Jonah's, is a deeply mysterious place of many layers, and uh, we can't always uh, uh, see the world as a strictly material place because things happen to us that are uh, in their way, It's not supernatural, preternatural. And I think that's the closest I can come to summing it up because it's a kind of complex story. Sure.
0: Sure. Well, well. as I understand, you initially started writing the city intending for it to be a novella for your publisher. Uh, but I understand that kind of got away from you. Can you talk about what happened when you, when you wrote the city?
1: Yeah, I was uh, these days, you know, they want you to write a, an e-single in order to uh, interest people in your next book and it's pre-ordered and whatnot. And, uh, I was sitting down to write a story that would be set in the same universal city uh, that Innocence was set in. And uh, uh, I was a fan many years ago of all those 87th Precinct novels by Ed McMahon, sure. uh in which uh, he invents his own city. It's a variation of New York, but it isn't New York. And uh, so I thought that's interesting, and it gives you a kind of interesting challenge and, and freedom as well. Uh, to invent your own city. So I said, well, I'll set the story promoting innocence in uh, the same universal city, and that'll be the only link. So I started to write it, and my publisher was waiting for it, and when I hit page 50 or 60, I realized, man, this isn't going to be a uh, novelette. <laughs> this is going to be a novel. So I had already delivered the novel for this summer. It's called Secret Forest, and they had liked it a lot, and it was in the schedule and I made the mistake or had a stroke of wisdom I don't know which of sending them 30 pages or so of uh, the city and said what do you think of this and they came back so overwhelmingly positive they said we we really love secret forest but this is the perfect book to follow innocence with can you write this in time and I had a number of months and I looked at it and said I think I can and uh, and Then it just grew and grew. Uh, It was one of the most uh, pleasant writing experiences of my life. Very few times was I sitting here wanting to nail my hand to the desk or punish myself in some way for being such an incompetent idiot writing it. Uh, It just flowed and flowed and uh, was exhilarating.
0: That that's great. Well, well, as you mentioned earlier, the the Jonah, the narrator of the city, is a, is a musician. Uh, what what connections do you see between music and your your own chosen art form, writing fiction?
1: Uh, I think in all art forms, it, there's there's something there's a it's interconnected because it's an attempt at beauty. It's an attempt to portray the beauty of the world, or I think that's basically one of the core functions. Of uh, literature, even if it's it's meant to be a dark and scary kind of literature, uh, which this book isn't meant to be, but I've certainly written some that were. And uh, whatever you're after, you're you're looking for some way to explain the world or an aspect of the world, and and to explore the world's beauty. And music certainly does that. Architecture does that. Art does that. Uh, And it's never been a surprise to me that every, almost every, I might not say every, every artist I've known uh, or illustrator has, in his heart, wanted to be a novelist. And so many novelists I've known, including myself, at one time painted or wanted to be a visual artist. Uh, And then there's many writers who have some musical talent as well but maybe and certainly in my case not equal to the, the ability to handle the language so I think all these all the arts are intertwined in a curious way that we don't often recognize and and it's there are our way of trying to explain the world to ourselves, humanity to ourselves, and purpose of our lives to ourselves. And uh, that's why I get upset with how many contemporary novels are nihilistic and say the world has no meaning and nothing you do has any meaning. And that always raises in my mind, why did the writer write the book? Because by the writer's own philosophy, the book has no meaning. Um, <laughs> so. I, that's not the way I work. And that's a long rambling answer, but I hope it was coherent.
0: No, no, I think it was coherent. Um, that, that actually brings up a good point because I know just from, from reading previous interviews and, and, um, articles that, that, you know, especially when you were starting out that you, you would read sometimes 150 to 200 novels a year as you were trying to, um, you know, uh, uh, not only enjoy reading but learning the craft of fiction. I wonder, do you, do you find yourself reading as much uh, fiction these days?
1: I don't find myself reading as much, partly because I, the older I get, the, the as the kind of books I'm write, writing gain, I would say gain depth, uh, because you you either grow deeper as you grow older or you you flatline, and uh, I when I. Um, I look at uh, an idea that I would write the last 15 years, say, as to one 15 years before that. Uh, these require a lot more research. And so I find myself reading a lot of books about uh, the subjects I'm writing about rather than uh, reading fiction for fiction's sake. And uh, uh, But I still read probably 30, 40 novels a year, uh, sure. so it, I don't give it up altogether. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, I know
0: over the years you've changed from following an outline for your novels to to writing much more instinctually. What caused that change for you? And and, and along those lines, do you ever find that you write yourself into a corner and have to back up and, and throw away several chapters?
1: Well, you know, I always wrote to an outline. but Well, let's just say this. I would write an outline. Then I would <laughs> sell it because in those days I could... I had sold enough that I could sell a book on outline, and then I would go away and write the book, and whatever time frame it was, six months, a year later, when I delivered the book, I would think it was much better in the outline, because it varied from the outline. It veered off into different things and new territory, and it was more exciting to me, but I discovered that publishers and editors, they've had a year to think about that outline they bought, and uh, it's... It becomes sort of, it's what they expect you to deliver. And when you didn't deliver what the outline was and you felt you'd a better book, they were disappointed because it wasn't exactly what you had promised to deliver them. And at one point I thought, this is self-defeating uh, and I'm not going to do this anymore. And the first book I wrote uh, without an outline was Strangers, which has at least 12 major characters and an extremely complicated storyline, And uh, I found it just astonishingly more satisfying to work without an outline, uh, to just let the characters take over and see where this story would go. And curiously or not, that was the first book I had that was uh, a hardcover bestseller and everything in the career accelerated rapidly once I stopped using outlines. The next book was a bigger bestseller, the one after that, bigger yet, and then the fourth one without an outline was my first number one. Uh, I think that for me, and I'm not saying this works fairly right, writer, ditching the outline and going organic uh, just works a great deal better. And as to your question whether I get, to some point and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, it's it's something I'm terrified of at times in every book, that where is this going? Although less terrified the last few years than previously, Uh um, I always have moments of fear that this is going to end up without an ending, or it's going to go somewhere that can't be resolved, but it always does work out. And because I write multiple drafts of a page before moving on, uh, Uh, and write not a draft and then go back. I just stay on one page 20, 10 times, 20 times, 30, whatever it takes until I feel that that page is polished properly and then I move to the next. I am I have plenty of time to think ahead to problems mm-hmm. and I've discovered that the I might think there's a couple of big problems coming and there's no solution I can immediately see, but I've learned that the subconscious is working on it and when you get to that troubling moment, you've got two or three solutions to it. So I've never had to back up and destroy anything.
0: That's great. Well, well, I know that you, like a lot of writers, write your novels on a computer, but from what I understand, it's not the type of computer most people would expect with the latest software, the latest version of Microsoft Word. Is, is there a reason you've kind of stuck with that familiar um, computer technology?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, and I I was on uh, CBS Sunday morning. Uh, the crew was here for... About a year or two ago, and mm-hmm. uh, Anthony Mason did the interview, and he's really good interview. And they were a great crew, and they were here for two days. And the first day, we never got anywhere near my office. And the <laughs> second day, they did this uh, uh, Steadicam, uh, so they didn't come in and see the office first. And we walked down the hall to of my office talking, and this Steadicam guy in front of us. So I walked into the office. Anthony Mason looked at my computer and said, My God, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you're lucky it's not Steam-driven. Uh, because, uh, the reason I have such an antiquated system is the first Microsoft 5.0, you could take Windows out of it and you could use all the word processing stuff without Windows, and I hated Windows. And my assistant was, was very computer-savvy. They took out the whole Windows feature, but subsequent version of, of uh Word, you can't take windows out. So I'm a guy who just doesn't want to learn a new software and (laughs) slow down or be afraid that if I learn and if I'm given a new software, it'll somehow inhibit the flow of my thought until I'm comfortable with it and I don't want any inhibition of the flow of thought. So I have the I can't even get a new monitor because they won't work with this file of <laughs> Word. I have a spare keyboard that'll work with it, and I have a spare printer that'll work with it. And so, until those things burn out, I'm not going to get a new software and waste a few weeks of my life trying to learn it.
0: Sure, sure. And 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 what what is the software? Is it like a version of Word, like
1: a very early? Very early. It's it's a DOS system. So that shows you how, you know, there, there were still mastodons on the earth when I got this computer. <laughs> so do you ever scare or surprise
0: yourself while you're writing?
1: It's very hard to scare yourself, I think, when you're writing. It's uh, something can happen. It maybe gives you a little chill. Uh, the, I think the closest i ever come to uh, scaring myself was when I was working on Intensity And I was long from ever doing an outline by that time. And I didn't know where the lead character, China, was going to go. And there comes a moment where she escapes the the, the serial killer in this story. And in fact, he doesn't even know she's there. She's been uh, following him. She's been uh, on his trail for a a period of time. But now he's... um, uh, she could, could escape, she could walk away, and instead she gets into his motorhome again, and I didn't know she was going to do that, and I had to get up from the chair when it happened and just walk around the room a little bit, because it <laughs> spooked me. More easy, easily, you can um, you can make yourself laugh out loud when I'm working on a novel with comic elements like Life Expectancy or one of the odd books, Um then I find myself sitting here laughing at some of the dialogue as if I were hearing it instead of writing it. Or you can move yourself to tears in certain situations, but I find that kind of thing much more likely than to scare yourself, uh, and I have no idea why, but that that's the way it is with me.
0: Gotcha well well, given your success to to date do do you ever fear becoming complacent with your writing or 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 being resistant to editing feedback and and if so what what do you do um, at this point in your career to to kind of combat those
1: uh well, let's see uh, resistant to editorial feedback. I've never been that way. I know that there are a lot of writers out there who go through periods I've heard of it that when they get successful, they say no more editorial feedback or uh, they get resistant to it i've always had the attitude that uh, the cover of the book doesn't say by dean coombs with brilliant suggestions by uh <laughs> so it, if i take a brilliant suggestion from an editor i'm the one that gets credit for it so why wouldn't i listen to it uh the practical truth of the matter is i uh because I write the way I do and polish each page before moving on. And that comes out of self-doubt, the feeling that I'm always somehow screwing up with this. Um, because I work that way, editors don't find much to do with it. But when they do, we if I disagree, we'll have a good back and forth. And if I agree, I'll just take it and find a way to, uh, to get uh, in, in there what the editor's asking me for. Um, it's... Um, that's see you had another part to that question but I just
0: uh, no it's okay I was just I was just the the first part of it was do you ever fear becoming complacent given your success specifically in terms of your writing or and I guess related to that do you do you give yourself new challenges with each book Well
1: keep... that that's been one of the I, I say to young writers if you know if if you really want to be somebody who tries to stretch constantly, get ready because you're going to run into publishers and editors who won't like that. Uh, When I was at Putnam and uh, was writing really breaking through, I had a publisher who loved publishing writers who did the very same thing over and over again. And some of them could be wonderful at what they did, like Dick Francis, but I wasn't like that. And we ended up in terrible brawls over, it. I can remember when finally there was a period where I said, look, I'm going to have to go somewhere else if there's not going to be a willingness to promote and push what I write instead of trying to push me into writing what is wanted. Um, And I had thought we'd break through with Strangers, and then Watchers was a larger bestseller. But then I delivered Lightning, and Lightning was, to this publisher's way of thinking, too different. Um, she said to me, look, the first quarter of this book, the character is a child. You can't do that. It becomes a young adult novel. And I so I started to wonder about books like Oliver Twist and whatnot. <laughs> I don't think that, that rule makes any sense. And she said to me, look, we, your career is accelerating. You're a hardcover bestseller now. We'll need to put lightning on the shelf for uh, seven years, and then I'll publish it. But if we publish it now, it'll throw a roadblock into your career, and you may never recover from it. And (laughs) I just didn't believe that. I also wondered, why not five years and why not nine? Why seven? You know, where did that insight come from? And I think we had a six-month argument about this, and she finally published it, but with very little support, and yet it went to number three. And the very next book after that was Midnight, and we went to number one. Um, And ever since, until my current publishing team, I have hit resistance when I come up with something different. Uh, Why don't you go back and write, give us a good monster story, or give us a good this or that. And if I were to do that, I would have stopped years ago, because... It's all too potentially boring to write the same thing over and over again. So what keeps me from being complacent, I think, is that I have a low boredom threshold. And if I were to just keep writing the same thing over and over, I couldn't do it. It, it would just be too tedious. So finding a new thing, like I remember when I delivered the first Odd Thomas, my publisher hated that book so much. He wouldn't talk to me about it. Um, and that was okay for me, uh, rather than fight about it. Uh, and I was fortunate, that my editor loved it. So uh, there were two very strong different opinions about it. As it turned out, the public liked the character very much, and I was able to do more with him. And uh, so you just, complacency, I think, comes from thinking, you've found what succeeds, now you just need to keep doing it. And I don't think anything succeeds for a long time unless you change and grow and what you're doing morphs into something different and hopefully better.
0: That's that's a great answer. So I, I know from previous interviews and in your early books that you wrote about writing that, that you're a student of the publishing business as a business. So so I have a uh, uh, an interesting question for you. If you woke up tomorrow and you were a 22 year old Dean Koontz and you were living in 2014 and starting a writing career, knowing what you know about. Amazon and the ability to self-publish and the way that eBooks are are um, uh, changing or adapting the 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 um, publishing business. Do do you think that you would be tempted to self-publish your own novels digitally, or or would you still pursue traditional publication with with a New York publishing house?
1: Everything is changing, of course, and and that's the way life always is. But I would argue that. The traditional method, a, re, a publisher who has the system and the distribution, uh, the distribution system and a team of everybody from cover designers to copy editors to page designers, uh, those are things that a writer can't do. Can't do all of them. So there may be some writers with an artistic eye that can devise a great cover uh, and uh, and a great page, because a lot of the self-published books I see coming from, you know, indie indie, uh, authors who publish through these various companies, they're poorly designed books, and I really think that there's a lot of things about a good book design that works subconsciously on the reader, the, the type font, the layout of the page, all that may seem insignificant to a young writer, but I think it can be very important. and. I really respect the team that works with me uh, and every all of their knowledge and what they do, and I know that I don't have that knowledge. Uh, I know that some people have had success with the e-book format, and it's led in some cases to regular book publication by a regular publisher, uh, but I still think that um, until there's further change, uh, the old way of doing it still offers the right of the greatest Surest paths to success, The ebooks are exciting and everything else, but um and I'm happy to sell the ebooks, but I, I like the full spectrum method of publication and and I just like having the feedback from truly talented professionals in each of their fields in a publishing house because they provide invaluable help to you in in um, promoting that book and and just in general, making sure it it's something in the marketplace that a reader passes by and looks at and goes, "Ooh, I gotta have that sure, sure well
0: I have to ask uh will will we see a third Christopher Snow novel?"
1: uh we definitely will i <laughs> i uh, I'm writing the last Odd Thomas now it's Saint Odd, and uh, when that's finished, I have um the city comes in the, uh, as I said, in this sort of universal city or this prototypical city. Um, and I want to write a third novel uh, set in that same uh, background. And one has come to my mind that I'm quite excited about. So I think when I finish St. Odd, I will write that first. Then I'll go to back to Ride the Storm, the Chris, third Chris Snow. I, that, the reason I stopped the Chris Snow thing is it was... The first, it was supposed to be the three first books I delivered when I moved to Bantam, were to be Fear Nothing and uh, uh, Seize the Night and Ride the Storm, and Fear Nothing uh, was met with delight the, the at at the publishing house and my editor, but again my publisher didn't was unsure of Seize the Night. He thought it got too funny. Um, thought it went a little too over the top or something and wanted me to scale it back and i was kind of exhausted because i had moved to this publishing house to because i thought we wouldn't have some of these disagreements and uh, and we did and i said okay i i think i need to put the third christopher snow aside until uh, i've delivered a couple one or two more books and then uh, And then we'll be on a surer footing, we'll know each other better, and I can go back to ride the storm, and they'll understand what I was doing. But then the next book was uh, um, False Memory, and the one after that was uh, From the Corner of His Eye, and the next thing I knew, I was on to One Doorway. And all these years have passed, and I never did get back to ride the storm, but I am determined to finish it, and I have slotted out uh, uh, a big block of time next year to do it. Great.
0: Well, I know that you wrote two earlier uh, books about writing that are now out of print, and you've mentioned in passing a few times that you might write a third book about writing. Do do you have any current plans to write a nonfiction book about the writing process?
1: I I would like to write one, but it would probably be noticeably different from the two that I published many years ago. Those were, I would say, the first one was out of date before it had hardly been published. The (laughs) second one was uh, better, and uh, uh, it was, however, I would say it was more mechanical, technical. I would argue that over the years I've learned that all of that important, all of that mechanical and technical things about writing are still important, like staying within one point of view within a scene and all the different things that come up like that. But what I've learned through experience and all these books later I would approach it in a in a different way writing about it. I would write it if I were doing a how to write now I would make the point of each of us has a voice that yeah he or she has to find and finding that voice is central to your work and if you find that voice and it comes naturally to you and you you what young writers often tend to do is imitate what they like the most uh, and uh, that they get past that some sooner than others. And that's what you have to do is get past writing what writing, trying to write, like things you enjoy reading and learning to write what's true to you, who you are as a person, what's true to your heart and that voice that is yours and not simply a kind of attempt to imitate a voice that you particularly apply. Um, And so I would write about finding your voice. I'd write about, all those elements that of writing fiction that are extremely mysterious. Uh, uh, for instance, where do you get ideas? Uh, I could do chapters, I think, on where ideas come from, and uh, but the, in addition, where they come from. About those ideas that seem to come from nowhere, uh, uh, I have said often that when. The, idea for Odd Thomas came to me. I was working on the face and I was sitting here and perfectly happy with the face and it was going well. And I finished a chapter and into my head came these lines, my name is Odd Thomas. I live an unusual life. And it had nothing to do with the book I was writing and I recognized it was an opening. I to another book. I turned to write it down and the next thing I knew I was writing longhand, which I never do. And I wrote page after page on a legal tablet, longhand. And when I was done, I had the first chapter of Odd Thomas. And I looked at it and thought, this could be something special. And I put it aside, went back to the face, and then wrote Odd Thomas after. And where did that come from? I don't know. Uh, I sometimes think the subconscious is the most important tool that a writer has going for. him. It links us to the world in a way that the conscious doesn't. Some people would say there isn't a subconscious, uh, and then you get into some other more mystical ideas about where these ideas come to you from. Uh, I think idea formation and how once the idea begins, you get out of the way of it uh, would be one of the most interesting things I could write about writing because getting out of the way of it is a large part about what writing is. I have a friend who's a drummer who has played with some very famous people and said uh, to me that we were talking one day and he said when he's drumming his best uh, and he knows it's his best because he kind of goes away. And when the whole performance is over, the show is over The other guys in the group will say to him, what the hell were you doing? Do that every time. That was great. And he'll say, I don't remember what I did. Uh, And he said, I just, when I'm best, I just, it starts to happen and I get out of my own way. And that resonated with me because that's exactly what happens when it's going well for me. I have to get out of my own way. I have to stop. Thinking about why this is happening, where it's going, I'd have to give myself to it. And I think writing about that probably would be helpful to young writers, so someday I may do that, but it wouldn't be your typical how to write book, I don't think.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, well, you mentioned earlier, and 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 what you just said, I think, was great, and and uh, would be great advice for for any writer to to aspiring writer to listen to. But, um, you mentioned earlier about the last uh, odd Thomas novel that's slated for later this year in December, Saint Odd. Do do you care to talk about Saint Odd at all?
1: Yeah, no, I'll talk about it a little bit. You know, this uh, I I never quite realized I would write. You know, including Odd Interlude, which was an interim little long novella or short novel however you want to see it I'm ending up with eight books in the series and uh, there's there's things unanswered that all have to be answered in the last and uh, I've I've long known where it goes and of course the whole series keeps repeating this little card that he and Stormy Llewellyn got out of the fortune-telling machine when they were 16, which says, you're destined to be together forever. That, I take to be a promise, and how that will be fulfilled at the end, given what's happened in the first book, will probably be different than anybody's expecting. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to that part of the book. Uh, There's also been a number of characters arise in the series that readers keep writing me. They want to know, are they going to appear again? What happens to them and so forth? And I want to fulfill some of that as well. Uh, So it's a good experience sitting here working on it, but at the same time, it's kind of a bad one. A sad one, maybe is a better word for it. Because when you get really close to a character and it comes to the end of the story... Uh, it does feel like you're letting go of somebody who is an actual human being in your life. Uh, and that probably sounds to some people like I should be institutionalized, but in fact, I might need to be institutionalized, but not for that reason. Uh, and the, a character who comes that alive for you is a great gift, and it's it's a sad thing to let go of it.
0: That's great. Well, you've often mentioned Watchers as your favorite novel of yours that you've written. Is that still the case for you?
1: I would say uh there's I was asked, I'm trying to remember which which interview, maybe it was a thing for this New York Times book review feature that's coming up. And I was asked what were my favorites of my own books. And I pretty rapidly typed out uh uh The City, uh Innocence from the Corner of His Eye, uh Life Expectancy and uh Bob Thomas and Watchers. So I think now that there's a number of them that I would say I'm just as happy with as I was with that one. But, you know, it's just very hard to write a book and that has a, a dog with human intelligence. Uh, and uh, everybody loves that. They, they love the whole idea of the dog who you can talk to, which is every sort of child's fantasy of being able to have his dog as a full-fledged friend whom he can discuss things with. Uh, that kind of story is a hard one to follow, that people uh, will like something else as well as that, and it's a hard one for a writer himself to like something better than that. But I've come around over the years to liking a number of others as well.
0: That's great. Well, you just mentioned dogs, and, and you've mentioned that you believe dogs will be in heaven, so I'd be remiss to ask, what about cats?
1: <laughs> well... I love cats, but there is there's a problem with me and cats. I am so allergic to cats that if I were to walk i sometimes I forget to ask a new acquaintance, Do you have a cat uh, because if I walk into a house where somebody has a cat my i have i go into anaphylactic shock uh, and it doesn't matter how clean the house is or anything else it's a mere presence of the cat and I my eyes start to swell shut, my throat starts to swell shut. I have to inject myself with two EpiPens in the fly, drink a little bottle of Benadryl and get to a hospital. Uh, wow. So when people say you must hate cats, you don't write about them very often and I <laughs> said it isn't that I hate them, they seem to hate me. <laughs>
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with best-selling writer Dean Koontz. Dean's latest novel, The City, was published this week. It's in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And as we've mentioned, the last Odd Thomas novel, St. Odd, will be published later this year in December. And Dean, thanks for doing this interview today.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me there. It, the, the time went very quickly.
0: It did. It did.